Hello, this is Who Cares, and I am your host, Amanda Marks. So today we're going to talk about something that um, arguably I think I approach with a, a, a lot more emotional curiosity than I sometimes do on certain topics that we talk about, particularly if I have a guest. I think a lot of times I'm um, uh, intellectually curious about stuff, and that's kind of where my enthusiasm comes out. But here comes a topic, you guys, that I feel very emotionally invested in, especially, I think, particularly at this point in my life. Um, and that is somewhat predictably something about early modern plays and early modern history, but um, somewhat unpredictably, it's not just about something I think is cool or interesting, but it's about something that I love and why it's cool or interesting. Um, so this this podcast is basically about why I love Macbeth by William Shakespeare. And I'm somewhat of a pragmatist about about history, which I'm also very interested in, but also about Shakespeare as sort of a figurehead of the early modern play movement, like people loving whatever they love and liking whatever they like is great, and far be it for me to like yuck anybody's yum. I, I appreciate the fact that, that Shakespeare remains so well known, and that people get a lot of emotional fulfillment out of Shakespeare plays and Shakespeare characters to this day. That is not my experience. Uh, I tend to be a lot more pragmatic um, and I tend to be interested more in like Shakespeare as the fact that like Shakespeare's like a survivor of this like singular time in history where like a lot of these plays and this way of playing existed and that Shakespeare is somewhat unique in the fact that like he's managed to survive and remain accessible like accessibility has created this kind of perpetual fandom I do think that's interesting um, I don't love a lot of Shakespeare I love Macbeth, and I always have. But the reasons why I have, um, the reasons why I have and do love Macbeth, have, have somewhat evolved. Um, and I want to talk about all those reasons. And a, a lot of this is also um, a, a good way to get to know me and the stuff that I think about and wrestle with in my own mind. And and I also feel that sometimes I'm a, a tough person to to get to know on an emotional level and. It is what it is, but I feel like if you wanted an introduction to the stuff that I think and care about emotionally, that this is a pretty good episode for that. So here we go. I did write this down, but it kind of bounces around. And if you are not familiar with the play Macbeth, that is certainly okay. Um, I am going to talk about the plot, but I'm also going to relate it to a lot of emotional stuff. So, you know, I just hope you find something to enjoy about it. And if you already like Macbeth or know Macbeth, and, like, don't feel any specific type of way about it, you know, go off, enjoy, I don't know. <laughs> um, so the, the only title that I have, the working title for this, that I wrote, these notes that I took, is just Macbeth is about anxiety. So here we go. I I think one of the reasons that, that I have stayed, this is also going to start out about me in, in the theater and performance disciplines. I think one of the reasons that I've stayed involved in the performance discipline and expanded my reach into like the not only the doing but into the philosophy and psychology and history and analysis of performance instead of just like literally doing anything else is because for me it is a form of fixation um when I wrote that it seemed sort of very derivative and basic to say um but you know I don't know I'm just gonna let that pass because I think most of us who, who are involved in theater and performance, and particularly those I know, like me, who are autistic and involved in theater, um, 
or or people who deal with anxiety or depression or any other form of of illness whether that is you know whether it be visible or invisible that theater and performance seems to signify one of two things a form of complete escape uh or a way to be completely unselfconscious like a chance and, and an opportunity to like say yes and mean yes or if your brain or experience equates more closely with mine um it is a constant source of anxiety about which uh one must learn more in order to convince oneself that someday and some way you will be satisfied by it or with it or by your contribution to it or something about it that doesn't actually exist because the idea of this kind of satisfaction or this kind of closure is not real just like the active creation of live performances is both permanent and impermanent so you know thus right like many of us in many aspects i think i've been massively shaped and invested in by and for something that is both everything and nothing uh and so what a revelation <laughs> it was to me um, when after already spending 26 of my then 30 years um, embroiled in this per perpetual existential dilemma. And I'm not trying to be dramatic here um, at all. Like, I I don't think this is necessarily important, but I think it is as important as it can possibly be for me to, like, come to terms with it. So here we all are on this ride together, right? It's this existential dilemma and I invested all of my time in it. I went into debt to learn about it. I moved across the country to perfect my expertise on aspects of it and forced myself and, and everything that I've ever wanted and into, fo into focusing in the practice of it um, with emotionally and socially wrenching results. At the age of 30, I found out that, that I was autistic. I was diagnosed with, uh, with ASD um, and that was not a surprise necessarily and it and it wasn't a game cha changer either it it was just more context um which i love i love context and it provided more context that i i needed and hoped would help me in order to get by and when i say i love context i really mean it it seems kind of inane to say but i make no apologies i overtly love context because for me context provides a continuum upon which to place things that are otherwise unqualifiable or disconnected things like relationship dynamics and uh you know dates time fact on their own they're kind of all by themselves they're kind of weird and and you know sort of suspended but when you set them on the same plane together and connect them based on previously acquired information oh boy it's so satisfying and helpful and I also know and I want to acknowledge, I, I know that this is something everybody does, but for me, the connectivity and active perception of the act of contextualizing something and, and not just the result of like knowing things, right? Hearing things and then knowing about them is what helps me make and keep those connections that I use to get by, that everybody uses to get by and learn. And I'm sure then this is also why it feels like such an embarrassing and confounding failure for me whenever I like quote unquote fail in a social situation. And one of the many reasons why it's become so much harder for me to remain as social as I used to be over the years, because, you know, in the immediate aftermath of whatever quote unquote failure has occurred, it feels like I haven't just made a mistake that one time. It feels more like to me, like sometime in my life while putting together this great and expansive diagram of context that I made a mistake 
that may have affected my entire worldview up until this exact point in time. And then I have to sort of actively fight against this anxious, vicious urge to like tear the tapestry of context up and like start over again. Um, so anyway, you know, why is this about Macbeth? Well, it, 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 it just is. <laughs> um, and there are a couple of reasons for that, in my opinion. And of course, as you've already told, I've warned you like 800 times, but also this is purely a subjective interpretation of Macbeth. The first reason is I've loved Macbeth ever since I was three years old. When I was three years old, my grandma, who was a middle school teacher at the time, and has also just always been a strange and wonderful person, um, told me the plot of the play like a story. And I have since read it. <laughs> um, I've been in it a couple of times, and I've directed it, um, which is still one of the um, crown jewels of my theater career. And as I said, you know, even though I would describe myself as a Shakespeare pragmatist, I think I would choose this play as a redeeming justification for keeping Shakespeare as famous as posterity and luck has made him. I love it. Um, so that's one reason. And the second, somewhat predictably also by my little intro, is context. So there's historical context. The play is written, up, you know, at a, a shaky point in history as a way for Shakespeare to share his paid endorsement of James I's rightful legacy to the English throne after the death of uh, Queen Elizabeth and after the contentious battle for power that had been kind of calmed by her long rule had once again been stirred up by the ascension of a Stuart into the now century-old legacy of Tudor rule. It was also written directly after the discovery and prevention of a plan that was attempted by Guy Fawkes and his papist accessories to blow up the parliament with the king and his supporters inside, or at least that was what they hoped would happen. And Macbeth in that context explains to its audience that it was meant to be. Both fate and fact reflect that James is right where he should be, safe and on the English throne. So that is one kind of context, propaganda as art framed as like this horror histo fantasy in an extremely volatile and changing country and also because of both its fraught political history and its legacy of like gimmicky or like controversial production concepts ending a lot of times in like riot or violence or mischance it's also developed this weird reputation for being a cursed play which is like all well and good um that fact always sets my pragmatism meter through the roof, but I mean, it is a grabber. And like I said, I don't want to yuck anybody's yum here. It's a grabber for a lot of people. And I, I can't say I don't understand the penchant to seek out creepy shit for kicks. Like we love a gimmick and that's okay. There should be no pejorative or shame in that. For me, however, it's the other kind of context that kicks me into gear. It drives me to say this play is my favorite Shakespeare and that's personal context. The fact that I think Macbeth is at its core, subtextually, contextually, and supertextually about the kind of anxiety that I really, really feel that I understand and relate to. And I feel that I relate to and understand so few things in my life. And I think that Macbeth, the character, is at the core of this. The Macbeth that I see isn't driven by greed or anger or ambition or fear really, but by this desperate, frantic need to contextualize himself and his accomplishments, successes and failures within his own world. 
Um, can I back this up, you may ask? The answer is um, both yes and no. Yes, in my own mind, and with incredible pleasure, here is my attempt to do that. Uh, look, it, it's just like this. What if we let be, or what if we perceive or conceptualize, or whatever the heck you want to call it? Uh, what if we see a Macbeth who is all of the things people say about him when the play's exposition starts? When the play starts, we hear about Macbeth before we see him. He's brave, heroic, capable of extreme loyalty, but also capable of this extreme cruelty, and very honorable to the causes and allegiant to the connections he has spent his whole life building. He and his friend and compatriot Banquo are the dream team death squadron against the Norwegian army, and Macbeth is all those things. But is he able to see himself as others see him? I say no, and I say that that starts immediately. When Macbeth first arrives into the play as a character, he is essentially minding his own business after this very heavy battle with Banquo, and they encounter the weird sisters. And when Macbeth sees these, these weird sisters, he is terrified and suspicious of these kind of nebulous, like ambiguous humanoids. Banquo, on the other hand, is like pickled and inquisitive, but not necessarily in an interrogative way. A Banquo's curiosity is playful and it acts in an immediate counterbalance to Macbeth's kind of grave curiosity. And when the weird sisters tell Macbeth that he is going to be the Thane of Cawdor and then the king, he asks why and how and explains logically to himself and therefore to the audience why that is not possible. We learn the man who inhabits that current title, uh, Thane of Cawdor, is alive and well-respected. This unrealistic acquisition of power is not only something that he has never considered, but it exists contextually outside of his continuum of understanding. Now, Banquo has a critical imagination that Macbeth lacks, and it is that critical imagination that Macbeth, I contend, will later call, quote, the wisdom that doth guide Banquo's valor to act in safety, unquote. Banquo is very smart and deliberate, like Macbeth, but unlike Macbeth, he is not of a serious character. Banquo is flexible about what he's willing to entertain, but prudent about what he will actually take seriously. And entertained he is in this moment, where Macbeth rejects and broods over the prophecies of these total strangers and interrogates them about things like facts and circumstance, trying to school them on what is. Banquo invites what he considers to be the patent absurdity of the situation, this encounter with these, these weird beings, and asks specifically for the weird sisters to speak to him and tell his future. He invites that prophecy. And he is, again, tickled throughout. But his destiny, tied into the prophecy that Macbeth hears, that Banquo's family line will become royal, while Macbeth has no such guarantee for himself, only the guarantee that Macbeth will be king, this becomes painfully linked to Macbeth's continuum of context, even though it may not immediately make sense. Macbeth can't ever seem to bring himself to make light of the situation that he's been told that he is going to be king, even when he recognizes it to be ridiculous in that moment. It can't possibly come true, right? So it has to be absurd. This is another symptom of anxiety that I interpret, to which I heavily relate. And when Macbeth very shortly after gets the news that he has become the Thane of Cawdor, under very grim and unexpected circumstances, Banquo manages to maintain his sense of humor while also being both surprised at its truth, the truth of the prophecy, and thrilled about its consequence as it relates to Macbeth's well-deserved social climb.
Macbeth, however, is terrified and tells us so. So what can that mean? Well, here's what I think it means. His continuum, Macbeth's continuum of understanding, expands slightly, right, to accommodate this new information, but then it begins to orbit around this context, this prophecy. And when Duncan announces that his successor will be his own son, Malcolm, which was not a given in that kind of power structure at the time in Scotland, Macbeth, who never previously considered the possibility of getting or even wanting this kind of power and position, is thrown into a crisis by the fact that only one of the impossible things seem to be coming true and the other is not. So therefore, the continuum of context is unstable. So we'll get back to like the wonderful Banquo in a moment, but I'm going to jump to talk about how Lady, uh, otherwise known as Lady Macbeth, relates to this equation. So many times on stage in productions of Macbeth I've seen, I feel that the Macbeth's relationship is kind of like, just like, kind of like sexy and like that's it. That There's something like vaguely sensual about them, but like it's kind of empty. Um, I think there is a lot of love there. And of course, some of it is sexual. They are married. And I, I would argue that they have a happy and communicative marriage looking at the text and the context. He calls her my dearest partner in greatness for heaven's sake. I think it's a good marriage. I do. What is that dynamic built on? Here's what I think it's built on. I think what's really cool about their relationship is that I can see, or rather I interpret, that Lady isn't merely calculating or manipulative or cold-blooded or cold-hearted or whatever, nor is she completely driven by desire or ambition. I think she is the one who handles the difficult or ambiguous moral dilemmas in that family, in that relationship. And that many of those have come from matters of things like protocol and social standing. Not only is she calm, social, and collected, she knows all the right things to say in public and at parties, all the right things like stocked in like the parlor and the larder for like a sudden and immediate royal crowd descending on the Macbeth's estate, which is exactly what happens. The king decides that he's going to come and drop in on Macbeth's castle unexpectedly, which is what allows them the opportunity to murder Duncan. But like she's ready. She doesn't worry about it. Things simply do not get to her the way that we see them get to Macbeth. And what a catch, I say, for a man who I would also say is a catch himself but doesn't necessarily know it. A complimentary pair, really honestly. And that's where I think so much of that love comes from that emerges before we even see them interact together before we even drop in on this play that the love comes from the trust and respect that they've built up for each other over the years she loves him for all he is even when he doesn't see it and she helps him handle the context that his position requires but for which his contextual continuum may not have space She's used to helping him frame his goals by encouraging the fact that they're possible when we see her do this and allowing him to see what a problem might look like after a solution or resolution has been reached, which is so helpful for an anxious and neurodiverse brain. So is she overstepping into treason and murder for selfish reasons? Sure. I don't think that's in, I don't think, I don't know that that point can be argued. Maybe it can, but I'm not trying to. However, the dynamic for her to offer the quickest way to success for Macbeth and the potential outcome of the plan doesn't come out of nowhere, I don't think. I don't think that she's like never suggested a way, the quickest solution to a problem before. I maintain that it's framed within a blueprint of love and trust. 
So when she flames the, when she frames the plan to murder Duncan for Macbeth, she does it without too much overt context. So there's this point where she lays the plan out and she uses a very emotional argument. Uh, yeah, is it emotionally manipulative? Absolutely. However, there's a point at which she lays it all out. She lays out the plan. She lays out this very emotional argument. And then after all of this, Macbeth basically asks, well, if we lay the scene just right, won't it seem, won't it be received that Duncan's guards committed the murder? If we plant the daggers next to them or on them, won't it be received by everybody who is here that they are guilty? And if we act not suspicious, that we will be free from suspicion forever. And I would venture to interpret that line not as a tacit agreement to Lady Macbeth's plan or a moment of being like beguiled or seduced by the emotionality or by the, the seeming ease of that plan. I interpret that, or I think it can be interpreted rather, as a genuine question, an assurance to be made good only by Lady Lady's affirmation that Macbeth is understanding her subtext, her hints, correctly. And he has. And that assurance of a shared understanding seems to be good enough for him in that moment as he proclaims himself then to be, quote, resolved, end quote, to the plan and all its implications, logistics, results, and yes, consequences. And Lady does not doubt him to do what's necessary, I would argue, not because she considers herself to be particularly like sexy or persuasive or emotionally manipulative, but because she believes in him and knows what he's capable of. She loves him, and she knows him. But the stress gets to both of them right after Macbeth kills Duncan. At the top of Act 2, Scene 3, she is on edge, knowing that he's committing this murder and waiting for him. But her edginess can be interpreted as something like excitement or nerves. Macbeth, however, has a full panic attack upon coming back into the scene after committing the murder. The first of two that I contend, or at least I interpret, we see within the play. So... He can't physically return to the scene of the crime, having left with the daggers in his hands instead of planting them on the drugged soldiers, as was the plan um, that he agreed to. So when he can't go back, she has to do it. She has to take the daggers and go back and plant them on the, the sleeping uh, guards. And that action, the fact that she has to go and do it, is a destabilizing moment for both of them, both in terms of how far to their comfort zones that they are pushed individually but also how unhelpful and unharmonious they seem to each other in those moments together. And we also know about Lady that this is a profoundly traumatizing moment for her, as this moment, this sequence, is the one to which she later returns again and again when she sleepwalks. And I think it's not just the blood either, remember, because I, I feel like that sometimes like the blood on the hands is like the only thing that people remember from like Lady Macbeth or know about Lady Macbeth or like know about the sleepwalking scene. But she doesn't just talk about the blood on her hands when she sleepwalks. She reenacts the moments after the murder as she's trying to sort of reorganize and reframe her composure and Macbeth so that they as a unit can begin their new lives under the generous auspices of this new lie. What happened? Well, this character who I interpret, I contextualize as never worried about too much, does begin to worry. And first, she's only worried about him. And only after she begins to worry about him does her own guilt begin to become overtly traumatizing to herself. So eventually, after what I contend subjectively is panic attack number two, 
those two characters who are so close, who love each other so much, never appear on stage together ever again. So when does panic attack number two happen? Happens at the banquet. That wonderful banquet scene that blends the memory of Banquo's integrity with ladies' misplaced support. And it is, in my opinion, a wonderful framing for any kind of invisible illness. So I'm going to talk about Banquo again now and, and Banquo's last exchange with Macbeth. Banquo comes in a little before anyone else at the top of Act 3, Scene 1, and tells the audience exactly what he fears has happened, is happening, and will happen. He says, essentially, I suspect that, he tells the audience, I suspect that Macbeth has killed Duncan in order to get everything that the prophecy said. I suspect that me and my son are next, and that it's not going to be enough for Macbeth just to have what he has now. And I want to keep me and my family safe. And Banquo is correct. <laughs> um, and Macbeth comes in. Other people come in too, but the main thing I want to focus on is their interplay. Macbeth comes into the scene. And Macbeth is being super nice to Banquo, but most importantly, asking all of these questions of Banquo and leaving a trail of reminders to Banquo. And I maintain that these are not clever questions. They're needy questions. And Banquo, who we know to be voluble and expansive, willing to say things, willing to speak up, gives these kind of rote, curt answers to these needy questions. Eventually, however, Macbeth, who's been dropping these hints, cannot help himself, and he asks the only question about Banquo's horse ride, because Banquo says he's going out and riding his horse, that, that Macbeth actually needs the answer to. Is Fleance going with you? Fleance is Banquo's son. And the prediction of the weird sisters said Banquo won't be king, but his hereditary line will be made up of kings. So Macbeth is asking, is Flance going on this horse ride with you? And in this moment here, the context between the two men, these two friends, diverge completely into two different streams of intention. Banquo knows Macbeth and the situation well enough to be sure that Macbeth knows that he, Banquo, has no intention of going to that banquet. As soon as he gets on that horse, he's getting out of town, and he's taking Fleance's son with him to safety. But Banquo thinks leaving with his child and thus protecting him will be seen by Macbeth as an act of passivity. Banquo will get out of Macbeth's way, but in a way that doesn't endorse any of Macbeth's actions, neither of them will ever see Macbeth again or threaten his power. However, Macbeth sees Banquo's intention as active. Banquo is keeping his own line of power open by leaving with his son, ensuring that Flance will live, thrive, and then someday supplant Macbeth. So in my opinion, this is a deeply insecure and beautifully transformative point for Macbeth when he allows his admiration for Banquo's perceptiveness and prudence to become resentment for all the things he thinks Banquo has that he, Macbeth, does not. And the perspective of his continuum from admiration to hatred shifts before our eyes. And it happens in a monologue. And that is my favorite monologue in this play, full of just priceless jewels of, of monologues and lines, in my opinion. So at this point, Macbeth thinks that his position is now secured because the one person who suspected what he had done, his best friend Banquo and Banquo's son Fleance, get killed by assassins. 
So yeah, we're, we're going to talk briefly a little bit more about that and how Macbeth kind of now sends people to do his dirty work. But essentially, after this exchange that they have, their final conversation, Macbeth does put a hit out on Banquo and Fleance. Um, and then he goes to host this banquet, this party. And he thinks that he's going to look really innocent because Banquo is supposed to be the guest of honor at this party. And he didn't show. He didn't. He, that's that, right? And Macbeth doesn't even really tell Lady about it. He doesn't tell his wife. He instead tells her, you know, not to worry about it. And before this, he sort of, we get the impression that he's kind of told her everything. So to him, at this moment, all the context clues are working in his favor. But then at the banquet, as guests are arriving, one of the hitmen comes in and tells Macbeth that Fleance got away. And his response to learning that the plan has gone awry is to say that had it succeeded, quote, he had else been perfect, end quote. And this is profoundly telling, in my opinion, particularly within a narrative wherein the character saying the line is not able to view himself accurately in comparison to his actions or perceive himself as others might or as others do. And then, of course, Banquo's bloody-bodied ghost shows up, sitting in Macbeth's seat. <laughs> and Macbeth understandably freaks the hell out that because of the current position he inhabits on his own contextual continuum, and everybody else is right because he's king, once he realizes that no one else can see the body, so he hasn't been found out or exposed for the fact that he's responsible for this murder, he knows he can't say anything about what he sees really overtly if he wants to keep himself in the right contextual frame or contextual focus or whatever you want to call it of his position as king and an innocent king is that right at that like a, um, another victim of circumstance and he really does super try not to say anything about it but everybody already knows something is badly wrong because of the way he is behaving even though they cannot necessarily perceive what it is the same way Macbeth is actively experiencing what is wrong because he can't and I think many people can't completely control a reaction to something so far out of their control but for which they know they are responsible um some of the people the guests of the party are curious some try to be helpful all of them seem concerned whether it's about for his health or fitness or both and once again as she has likely done many times before in, in less dire circumstances lady steps in to smooth the edges of this embarrassing meltdown um, part of the process of smoothing these edges includes explaining the behaviors away to her worried guests. They're all people who trust and support the Macbeths, whose continued support they need, the both need. But another part of that now includes some private moments with her husband to try and get him basically to shut the hell up and act quote-unquote normal. And at this point, he tries to explain to her what he's seeing and experiencing. Even if she doesn't see it too, he hopes that she will be able to understand it, to contextualize it herself and help him figure out what he can do to make it stop. But she doesn't because she can't. She instead tries to tell him how he looks to everyone else. And she tries to tell him what she sees, which is nothing amiss except for his own suspicious behavior. So what is left for him to do? He has to try to fake it, but he can't. He is so terrified by this reality, even though it lasts but a few moments, that the dinner is ruined. And rather than trying to keep saving it, Lady just shuts it down and tells everybody to go away. And then the two of them, the Macbeths, have their last moments together in the play, their last intimate chat 
as I contend, they try to pick up the pieces of this incident and pretend that they haven't each been deeply disturbed and deeply disturbed the other beyond the point of understanding and communication. And honestly, even though Macbeth is talking about murdering more people um, in this speech, uh, to me, subjectively, it's actually a pretty sweet talk because it's quiet and it's detailed and it's pretty honest until the last few lines. And in my opinion as well, even the dishonesty of the last few lines are protective and loving. It's a white lie of assurance. I think they love each other so much and they want to make what they've done work for them the way it used to. But I think they both know in this moment, though they don't acknowledge it, that things have gone too far for that. Um, and the banquet scene as a whole uh, resonates for me within my own contextual continuum. Um, I know, you know how many times I have been or become terrified or paralyzed with these inexplicable feelings that I am not necessarily able to frame or explain to other people. And a lack of understanding or a lack of empathy can be very solitary. You know, how many times might the people who love us and know us best try their best and just cannot understand the ghosts that we see sitting there in our seat of honor, right, at a busy, happy table? These can be, you know, reminders of our imperfections, our failed plans, the designs of our harmful obsessions, racing thoughts, self-destructive behavior, all of these along with this terrible reminder that were it not for any number of mysterious factors or triggers or reasons, we had else been perfect. And another aspect of this play that sort of falls along with that sentiment that is sort of resonantly emotional, textual, and contextual is this thing that I mentioned, I think, earlier about like Macbeth becoming more and more reluctant to do any of the terrible things, usually murders, that he orders or that he thinks are necessary unless he has a justifiable outcome or predictable outcome that he can reconcile into his own tapestry of context, his own contextual continuum. Um, and the argument that I choose to make for why this is, is that Macbeth, who has killed people before under the circumstances of very clearly delineated, like, quote-unquote, justifiable situations, things like war, combat, is probably, perhaps, shocked and definitely traumatized uh, by the toll that the murders of Duncan and the two guards that he first tries to frame and then really suspiciously kills in order to keep their denials of guilt from like poking holes in the narrative he and his wife concoct and endorse in order to like try to manufacture this kind of similar black and white thinking that it really messes with him. And so for nearly three acts after the murder of Duncan and the guards, Macbeth sends other people to kill for him. And yeah, sure, I don't think trauma is the only reason for this and I wouldn't necessarily make that argument, um, but I think that keeping his hands clean, right, his hands clean, is not only a practical move to keep people from proving his guilt for the murder and illegal ascension to power, but it's also a convenient way for him to dissociate from the trauma of his guilt, the violence that he is at the contextual center of. So assassins kill Banquo and attempt to kill Fleance, and assassins murder the entire Macduff household minus Macduff, who later is the person who murders Macbeth. So this is escalation, but it's escalation without the responsibility of direct action for Macbeth. And similarly, I think, after the, the banquet, um, 
you know, again, as I said, Macbeth and Lady are never seen together again. And when Lady Macbeth dies, Macbeth's tomorrow and tomorrow speech that follows the announcement of her death, she dies off stage. But that tomorrow and tomorrow speech could be interpreted as a another form of like kind of a self-aware or philosophical dissociation. When he hears first of her death, he basically says, oh, this wasn't a good time. Another time would have been better. What he actually says is, she should have died hereafter. There would have been a time for such a word. And that's when he begins to say tomorrow. And he gets caught up in this kind of existential thinking. He goes into this like rhapsody about how life is a predictable and dramatic spectacle, but on a grand scale, it is meaningless. And this may be how he feels in the moment. I, I personally find this sentiment relatable on several levels. Um, but that is, I believe, in part because of how dissociative it is. Um, it's very easy to dissociate yourself from a way either to acknowledge things if they are things that need to be addressed or to move away from them and redirect into something you know healthier and more tangible, something that you can build on instead of just disappearing into. So how convenient <laughs> for Macbeth and that directly after that speech is over, Macbeth's hand is forced into direct combat once again, and he is once again forced into the reality of accountability, um, even if he may not see it that way. So with that, I want to circle back just a bit in order to sort of get to another one of my favorite things about the play, and it's sort of tied into Macbeth's re-entry into direct combat and direct action. So one of the things that is important here is the the prophecy in act four after this disastrous banquet Macbeth finds the weird sisters in order to demand concrete answers to some very specific questions that he has and although he does not ask them all we kind of know what they are what they're going to be he wants to know who or what should I be afraid of what should I be careful about or watch out for and will Banquo's children ever reign in this kingdom so will the first prophecy be fulfilled despite Banquo's death? And the answers that he gets from the Weird Sisters are either va are, are vague but interpreted by Macbeth as specific to his own contextual understanding or figurative but then interpreted by Macbeth literally. He's told he should fear Macduff. And he does take that seriously, but then when he's told no man of woman born can hurt him. He then assumes that this prophecy might cancel out the first one. He literally says, well, then live Macduff, what need I fear of thee? So like, oh, well, if Macduff can't kill me, then I don't even need to be afraid. When he's told that he'll be in power until Burnham Wood rises up and comes to his castle seat at Dunstanane, he thinks instead of a warning, it's a signal to him that he will rule perpetually because trees don't walk. Like, it's as simple as that. When he receives a vision of the line of kings, a like a literal vision of a line of kings descended from Banquo that is, you know, prognosticated in Act 1 and then reinforced, the fear and anger he feels at the lack of, I don't know what, the lack of control, lack of interpretation, the lack of guidance about what he sees, gets focused on a retaliation on Macduff, who he's not necessarily afraid will hurt him anymore, but who he also learns has just joined the, the opposing army, the ones who are coming to try and unseat him. So instead of ending one bloodline, the bloodline of Banquo, that's been prophesied to take over his kingdom, he chooses to end another. And he sends a hit to Macduff's household, and he murders everybody there. Perhaps his fear of Macduff 
can't be fully processed, right? Because of the vagueness of the sister's prophecy. But it, it's still then acted upon as retaliation or revenge. So could this be a bid for control perhaps or something? Uh, I, I don't know. I think that's a cool way to interpret it. But then thinking further ahead, you know, what happens to these predictions? Eventually, they all become literally true. Burnham Wood is hewn and used as a blind to hide enemy numbers as they do what? March towards Dunsinane's castle walls, the very door in which Macbeth is holed up, trying to avoid the responsibility of combat until the last possible minute. And, you know, no more. He can't do that anymore. He arms up and begins to fight. And he does so now more comfortably than he did when he was, you know, murdering people <laughs> or, you know, murdering people like Duncan. Because presumably he still can't find any context in that moment for how, even though the Burnham Wood prediction came true, how the other predictions could be true despite the evidence showing up on his literal doorstep. He then confronts Macduff, tells Macduff he is wasting his time trying to fight him because Macbeth can't be killed. But then, after he reveals that prophecy to Macduff, Macduff provides the final bit of context for Macbeth. No man of woman born, which Macbeth contextually interpreted as no one ever, means Macduff, who was delivered by Caesarian. Two predictions are then both contextualized and fulfilled. Beware Macduff, because he is not a man of woman born. But only when Macbeth is receiving context from the best possible source to interpret it, his own killer. And then, in a play of many wonderful things, something wonderful <laughs> happens. We're, we're almost at the end. This is the last scene of the play. So at first, when Macbeth learns this, all the context begins to make sense. Macbeth wants to stop fighting and run. To avoid, right? To avoid... Uh, accountability and responsibility and to avoid the danger of this contextual continuum beginning to make sense and yeah I mean in this moment like Macduff kind of razzes him about how like running is cowardly and he'll be in for a life of imprisonment and ridicule if he doesn't stay and fight I don't interpret Macbeth's final answer to Macduff as purely a, a fear or acknowledgement of like not wanting to be a coward or not wanting to like be in trouble um, I see Macbeth's final words to Macduff as, as a moment, I choose to interpret it, as kind of a moment where the context begins to crystallize in a way that makes sense. And, and I will, I've sort of avoided reading a lot of Shakespeare here, but I will read Macbeth's last words in the play. He says in response to, you know, Macduff saying, well, you're going to be, you know, if you don't fight me, you're in for a lifetime of embarrassment. He says, I will not yield to kiss the ground before young Malcolm's feet and to be baited with the rabble's curse. Though Burnham would become to Dunsinane, and thou opposed being of no woman born, yet I will try the last. Before my body I throw my warlike shield, lay on Macduff, and damned be him that first cries, hold, enough. And the way that I interpret this, at least in this moment, this point in my life or my career or whatever you want to call it, my own continuum of context, is that these last words represent the only moment in Macbeth's life in which his context and his real experience of the world and of himself are completely synchronized. 
no doubt, no more fear, no confusion about the role he is meant to play, this, as he calls in his Tomorrow and Tomorrow, right, this idiot, full of sound and fury. He knows who he is, and he knows what his world entails. And with his contextual continuum full and fulfilled, and his life finally in line with his mind, he gives himself up to the culmination of these actions. He gives himself up to everything that he has lived, and he gives himself up to nothing. Anyway, I, I don't think that I romanticize or idolize this play or this character in any way, but I am so grateful for its relatability and oh, what it's come to mean to me as I attempt to reconcile my own everything <laughs> that seems so thrilling and so strange or just so very, very sad trying to interpret all of this against this feeling of a, a vague and inevitable nothing. Um, but, you know, it's worth it. And uh, my dear friends and listeners, <laughs> um, as I hope you all do when you struggle through the potential futility of finding meaning in life and action, um, I hope that you, as I will, and I promise to do, um, will always try to last. I am Melinda Marks. This is Who Cares. Uh, until next time, my friends. Bye.